0: I wonder how your Lent is going, four days in. On this first Sunday of Lent, it seems to be appropriate to be starting our sermon series for the rest of this time, starting in a desert. Jesus was in a desert. And God always seems not to think it strange, that deserts, with all the problems you face there, sometimes end up by finding that it's not been a disaster, but an opportunity. From its opening pages, the Bible is full of examples of men and women who were meeting God in the desert. Abraham, sent Hagar, Sarah's now redundant slave girl, Hagar, with her baby boy. He sent them with a loaf of bread and a bit of water to die in the desert. Moses saw a burning bush which was not consumed. God spoke to him in that Sinai desert and commissioned him to lead his people out of Egypt to the Promised Land. Elijah fled into the desert to escape Jezebel's wrath. And God met him and reassured him that he would overcome. And he would not be alone. And even Paul, after his conversion, spent some time in Damascus with the faithful Ananias. And then went to the desert. The desert of Beersheba, just south of Jerusalem. Not just for 40 days, but nearer 400, he told the church in Galatia, reflecting and preparing in the silence and power of the desert for his coming ministry and death. I expect, being intelligent people, you will have spotted the common line going through a common theme running all through all those four times in the desert. They all showed people who in the desert met with God in a life-changing and transforming way which set them on their path better equipped to do God's will for the future. Their lives would never be the same again. And for them, and sometimes even for us, the desert can be the place of opportunity, the place where God can meet us. Luke places his account of Jesus' temptations in the desert immediately after his baptism by John. You know what happened in the baptism by John, down by the Jordan, where God the Father had assured God the Son in the presence of God the Holy Spirit all there together by that miserable river. He said and was heard to say, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. And then Satan attacked jesus when he went down to the desert we'll see what happens there but can i just point out what happened at the baptism the three things which became clear at jesus baptism which are going to be important when we come to look at the temptations one he was being challenged about who he was his identity He was given the assurance from God the Father that he was my beloved son. That's a pretty good answer to who am I? At the uh, at the baptism he found out who had sent him. It was confirmed. It was God himself. And Jesus always paid complete and utter allegiance to God, his Father. And the third thing he heard in that voice by the Jordan was a reminder of why he'd come. What was his vocation? What was his purpose in life? What did he have to do? He knew because he was God. But it was confirmed by God the Father in the dove-like presence of the Holy Spirit. It's lovely when you get the Trinity all together like that. (laughs) Tell it to the Jehovah's Witnesses next time they knock on your door. They don't believe in the Trinity. So let's look look at these one by one. First of all, his identity... Who am I? Jesus, we're told in verse 1, you might like to follow this on page 1030, you might find it helpful. Check that I'm getting it right. I'm not making it up. I'm basing everything I say on the only authority I know, which is the written and living word of God. Here it says, Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, went to the desert. The Holy Spirit took him to the desert, the place where he was going to be tested to the ultimate. That was part of God's will? Well, yes, it says so. And often God does use those times of hardship and difficulty to teach us new things, powerful things, life-changing things about ourselves and about him and about other people. So the Holy Spirit caused him to be there. It wasn't an accident. He was driven by God himself, the Holy Spirit. He was led to the desert where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. All 40 days. That's pretty tough too. By the devil? Where did he come from? Where was he when the world was created? Did God create him? Well, he was there. And there is an obscure verse in the Old Testament which says that he rebelled against God in heaven and was thrown out and wandered around seeking whom he may devour on this planet for the rest of his existence, one day to be vanquished. In an awful sense, I have come to believe that we need evil in the world so that we can prove that we can make the choices which God wants us to make. If that were not the case, we would be a bunch of puppets just doing God's will. We have freedom. I don't know all the answers to that, and you can have me up on the carpet afterwards and tell me I've got it wrong. I'd love to talk to you about it, but not now. And the other thing which I'd like to get straight is that the word for temptation in the Gospels is a Greek word, paradzmo. parazo, sorry. And parazo doesn't mean temptation as you and I know it. Temptation to risk a bet. Temptation to have some chocolate, more than we need. Temptation to, well, you know what your temptations are. That's not primarily what the word means. The word primarily means testing. Like the car going into the 12,000 mile service or 18,000 or whatever they are these days to test if it's still working according to the Maker's instructions. Jesus went to be tested. Not just because, no doubt, the devil, when he smelt, when he was being asked to create some bread out of stone, to just think after 40 days with not very much to eat at all. He could do with a loaf of bread. And, oh, you can tell the devil, sort of devil spreading the smell of freshly baked bread under his nostrils. That's not what he was really being tempted about. He was being tempted about what had been said. If you are the son of God, make these stones become bread. If you are. He was being tempted to doubt his identity. I guess we all have our own deserts not usually the sandy sort, although I could tell you of one or two of mine. The desert of doubting God in the midst of depression. Of fearing what might happen. Suffering. Dying. Worrying about the family. I thought when they left for university it was all over. Dream on. relationships, money maybe, loneliness. That's true for a lot of us. Whichever it is, the devil comes and whispers to us, are you really God's beloved son or daughter? Or is he he having you on? Fancy letting you go through this? Who are you? Who are we? can he be well pleased with us? the devil suggested when we devil see, oh sorry i'm getting enthusiastic and patting the wrong bit <laughs> uh, sorry. can we be well pleased can he be well pleased with us if we succumb to doubt and depression and all these other things i 've just listed I love the way. That Justin Welby, when he's in a tight spot, thinks very clearly and quickly. He was in the office of Charles Martin, the editor of the Daily Telegraph. Forgotten his name. But anyway, the editor, who had got evidence that it could be that Justin's father was not the person he thought he was. And he brought some swabs in his back pocket, as editors do, and asked Justin, would he mind if he put one in his mouth so that it could be tested for D- DNA? And Justin said, Well, if that's what you want to do. So he did it. And it was proved that his father wasn't who he thought he was. His father was a result of his mother's early days when she had a wild thing and went off with the private secretary to Winston Churchill. That's who his father is, biologically speaking. So what did Justin Welby say? He said, disappointingly, to that um, eager for a front-page splash editor, he said, there is no existential crisis. I have no resentment against anyone. Why? Because my identity is founded on who I am in Christ. <clears throat> Could you say that? On what grounds can you be sure? I love the old hymn, I am his and he is mine. I'm loved love with everlasting love. so, the testing comes when We're asked, is that true? So testing is not so much about giving up things. It's about submitting ourselves this Lent and at other times to a spiritual checklist about are we going on being filled with the Spirit? So I want to suggest to you that this Lent, rather than being too concerned about how much chocolate we eat, we ask whether by the time Easter dawn, Easter day dawns we've grown to be more like Christ than we are today or last year or in the last century. The uh, 8 o'clock liturgy in its um, quaint 1662 way prayed this morning um, as a Lenten prayer that we may be prepared for the paschal feast which is as you know common sense language for saying be prepared to enjoy your Easter conscious of how you spent your Lent that's the paschal feast then you may like to cast your eye down some of the things in Paul's checklist that Pauline read to us in a second reading, and this is even more important than looking at the first one. If you don't mind turning to page 1183, I want you to just to see what these words actually say. Page 1183, Colossians 2, and verse 6. Paul is checking up that they know where they've come from and where they're going as Christians. So he gives a revision, first of all. So you know that you have received Christ Jesus your Lord. You have asked him to come into your heart, take over your life, and give it entirely to him. It's not my will, but yours be done. The Gethsemane prayer of Jesus. Can we say that? Doesn't need to have been a special time. No, not necessarily a Damascus Road experience. As I think I've told you before, Janet has one of those, and I'm madly jealous. But I, it grew over me; it grew on me over a period of time. That's all right. Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him. Live in Him. That means continuing in a perfect, in a in a permanent state of abiding in Christ, allowing nobody else to tempt you away. How do you do that? Verse 7, You've been rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. You're rooted and built up in him. Rooted? How, How that? Well, in the word of God. How do we know anything about God, the living word, Jesus, the living word? We know it because it's been written down in the Bible, his written word. The Bible is full of foundation documents that Paul says are able to make you wise for salvation. Salvation doesn't mean just going to heaven when we die. Salvation means wholeness. It means living a complete life now. Life to the full, as the phrase goes. Peter said, we find out about this by reading what men spoke from God and then prophesied. The writer to the Hebrew tells us that scripture is a two-edged sword able to cut through all our defenses and show us how how we really are. Timothy says, all scripture is God-breathed so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for good work. How much time do we spend, not just here in church, but during the week, getting equipped for God's work by spending time with him in prayer and spending time with him In Bible study because we need to do that because in verse 8 Paul says see that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world we all know what they are they're the forces of today's culture coming at us from all angles saying you don't believe all that lot do you testing perhaps So we've got to check what we believe against God's revealed word in Scripture as our primary source. Then, verses 9 and 10 can come true. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form and you have been given fullness in Christ. A lovely word, fullness, isn't it? Growing to full maturity as perfect, no, not quite perfect, but on the way, copies of who Jesus is. This is the ground in which we need to be rooted. That's why Jesus replied to every one of those three temptations in the desert. It is written. Read all about it. We must go on. Go back to um, Matthew to, to Luke. His allegiance was to God my Father, the second temptation Jesus Faced was when in his mind's eye he could see all the nations of the world. Do it my way, said the devil, and it's all yours. Do it my way. I shudder when I go to see somebody about a funeral and they say, oh, and by the way, when we go out, and we'd like the coffin to go out to, to um, what's his name, um, Frank Sinatra singing, I did it my way. The Christian can never say that. We do it, Jesus way, and we spend our life trying to a find out what the difference is and b putting it into practice. I want to do it my not my way, Christ's way. Jesus in the desert chose to do it God's way, even though it led to a bare hill on a bare bare tree on a bare hill outside Jerusalem. So let's ask God to lead us as we try to do that. To check we're doing it God's way, to use the God-given marks of discipleship this Lent—not these scripture and prayer and faithful membership of the body of Christ here—to check we are not allowing an aggressive and alien culture to squeeze us into its own Godless way. Your notice sheet tells you on the book on the bookstore which might help. Just let me take a moment to explain. Um, it's a book by a woman called Paula Gooder. Who is a remarkable academic theologian? Ugh, you say. I first met, when well, Janet and I first met, Paul the Gooder as we sat at her feet on a platform at my old theological college in Cambridge Ridley Hall. And for those three days, we listened, amazed, and astounded, and challenged by the two speakers on the platform. One was a guy called. Eugene Peterson, who translated the message. You think he knows what he's talking about? The other one, who was the most good-looking academic theologian I've ever seen, the Goodett, she explained how it all works as she went through the Book of Two Corinthians. I shall never forget. She's now canon of various cathedrals around the country, but last week she was made canon of St. Paul's Cathedral, and more important than that, she was made chancellor of St. Paul's Cathedral with the hope that at the seat of power not just in the church but in the state, she will be advising, as the job description asks her to, to make sure that the dean and chapter and all those in authority are on track. Now just for £8.99 <laughs> as you leave, you can buy this book. We're using it as we go through Lent to read after breakfast together every morning. It's looking at the ways in which we can learn to be more Christ-like every day of Lent. I can recommend it wholeheartedly. Lastly, and very quickly, his vocation and his purpose was the third temptation. Why am I here? How should I live? Satan came to him trying to impress the crowds surging around the temple by jumping off the tower and getting the angels to bring him safely down. But Jesus knew that the way to the cross was nothing to do with the life of the celebrities today. He, the visible presence of God in the world, had nothing to do with populism. He was who he was. His allegiance was 100% to his father's will. His vocation was to do that will to the hilt. Do you often catch yourself impressing other people, saying things, doing things which will make a good effect? I do. I'm doing it all the time. I prayed before I stood here that I wouldn't be doing it this morning. How can we care about other people genuinely? How do we, can we care about the cares of the world? Do we bother? It's poverty, it's obsessions with instant gratification its pursuit of power, its wanton destruction of the planet. What can I do about all that? Not much. That's the question George Hoffman asked as he founded Tearfund 40 years ago. And his answer was one you've heard before, probably. I, just one person, he said, cannot change the world, but I can change the world for one person. Think of that as you walk around Claygate this week and meet people who might value your help and love. Or wherever you go. So where is your identity based? Where is your ultimate allegiance? And how aware are you of God's God given of your God-given call to follow him alone this week this Helen and always? What's your ambition in your daily life as you move around the village or anywhere else? What can I give in your time? In my time, my energies? the love which Christ has lavished on me. How can I unreservedly this Lent live for him in all I think and say and do? Giving up chocolate or alcohol is not a bad thing to do. Carry on. But giving of ourselves totally in in answer to the testing we receive, giving ourselves in love for God and neighbor, that has outcomes which can be eternal. Eternal. May I pray as we finish. Let us pray. O Jesus, Master Carpenter of Nazareth, who on the cross through wooden nails hast wrought man's full salvation, will dwell your tools in this your workshop, that we who come to you rough hewn may be fashioned into a truer beauty by your hand who lives and reigns with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen.